My mother is in her 80s now, still serving our, uh, the local church, or the church she attends. And she, she continues to amaze me over and over again in so many different ways. About 10 years ago, she calls me and she says, guess what I did today? <laughs> um, well, it could be anything if it's my mom. And I'm like, well, what? She goes, I went parasailing. She's 75 years old at that time. I went, what? She goes, yeah, we were down in Florida, me and your father, and uh, I saw this person parasailing, and I turned to Jim, my, my, my father, her husband, and, and I said, I've always wanted to do that. And I don't know whether my dad tried to talk her out of it or whether he was like, yeah, go for it or what, but she went parasailing at 75 years old. And I'm just like, what? It's, here's a picture of her right here. No, actually, that's, 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 a, that's paragliding. Uh, the same thing, though. And I wonder about people like this who just jump off cliffs. I mean, I know when you first get started, you, you run on beaches and it lifts you or you run on a, in a field. But, but um, these people that jump off of mountaintops and cliffs and just trust the wind and the equipment and the sail to, I mean, there's, if you, if that thing fails, there's no way, you're toast, man. And, you know, that kind of trust, that kind of adventure, I hear it's exhilarating. <laughs> Unlike my mother, I've never experienced that kind of thing. And I don't know, maybe I'll wait until I'm 75 before I'll try doing that. But, but I don't have to wait to go paragliding or parasailing to take the adventure of trust because honestly, I and you, we are engaged in trust every day. Did you know this? Think about it. We're constantly involved in trusting. And so when people say, well, I don't trust him or I don't trust them, that's true. I don't trust him or trust them, but they trust someone because all of us, when we, you can't escape it. All of us are engaged in different relationships of trust with people or with governments or with money or with um, cars or you know, traffic lights. I mean, trust is all around us. And the fact of the matter is all of us do trust and I want to invite you, this is the beginning of a series today, I want to invite you on an adventure of trusting God like you've never been on before. And I mean that for all of us. For those of you who have walked with God your whole life, for those of you who have just started walking with God, for those of you who are just checking out the church, and just checking out God. I want to invite every one of you, lost, don't know my way, don't really believe in God, all the way to people who have been trusting him for it seems like forever. You can go deeper in trust. And I was telling the people that pray with me every Sunday morning earlier just today, I believe that the deepest parts of every human being is the desire to trust. But because of sin and because I've been hurt, because you've been hurt, because of things that have happened in life, we decide 
not to trust anyone but ourselves. When we do that, we limit ourselves from so much that God wants to give us. I want to invite you to join me on this next seven weeks, this adventure of trust. And if you go with me into this trust, and we're going to invite people to get in life groups and to go through an excursion guide that we've written for this. It's just really, really cool. I promise you, if you'll go with me on this adventure of trust, it will change your life. It'll blow you away. You will grow deeper in your trust of God. Will you join me on that trust? We'll start right here. What is it about the end of that video that hits us so hard? Isn't it that we know that there are times where we just won't trust God? It's it's not that we can't. It's that we won't. And why is that? I mean, of all the people in the world for us to trust, Jesus, for, for the, of all the beings to trust, you know, God himself who has brought this world into existence, God who sent his son, we just sang about it. God so loved the world that he sent his son. We, we can trust him, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I know that's the right Sunday school answer. Yes, I trust you, but this video helps point out that really there are times in our life where we won't trust God. And yet, God knows that the life that he has planned for us, the, the abundant life, the flourishing life that we talked about last week, the life that he designed for us can only be experienced when we trust him. And so God systematically arranges life to teach us to trust him. And like I said before, deep down, I believe we, we are wired to trust, but because of sin and because I've been hurt and things, other things have happened, I, I've just learned to trust me God says to us again and again and again, trust me. He says to you, fill in the blank, your name, trust me. And you and I say, I'll just trust me. Now, you know, just get down to the basics on this adventure of trust. If we're going to learn to trust God, then we have to learn to come to him. So let's start real basic there. There's all kinds of stories in the Bible about people coming to Jesus in all different kinds of ways, people coming to God in in all different kinds of of expressions and conditions. Turn to Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, and uh, we'll join the story of a group of people 
Mark chapter 12, a group of people who came to Jesus and uh, actually, they're going to be a model for how we're not supposed to come to Jesus. But uh, when you find Mark chapter 12, let's stand to our feet. We'll do this to honor God's word. And I'm, I'm kind of picking up the story right in the middle. I'm at verse uh, 13 of Mark chapter 12. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians, we'll talk about them, to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? (laughs) Should we pay it or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius, that's a, that's a Roman coin, and let me look at it. So they brought the coin, and he asked them, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. All right, you can be seated. Did you notice in the very first section that we read this phrase, they came to him? Uh, God wants us to come to him, except he doesn't want us to come like these guys. So if you want to take notes, you can just write down that phrase, God wants us to come to him. So how did they come to them? But first, before we talk about how they came, who's they? We see the names of these Herodians and these Pharisees, but who are the they that sent them? And that's right in verse 13. I didn't read it, but here it is. Verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, when it says teachers of the law, think teachers of the Bible, people like me, teachers of the Bible, the, the Torah, the teachings, chief priests, the the Bible teachers, the elders, um, the Pharisees, and the Herodians. Basically, and this should be highlighted, uh, but I forgot, the teachers of the law. Basically, you've got the most religious people in Israel (laughs) who are coming to Jesus. You've got the most religious people in Israel who are gonna model for us how not to come to Jesus. And these These religious leaders, you would think of all the people in the world, the ones who would trust God the most are the most religious then and now. But isn't it interesting how many times the most religious or the the ones that seem to be the most religious in reality are the ones that trust God the least Someone go, hmm, because I'm talking to the most religious people in Lorain County. You're you're in church on Sunday morning. What are you doing here? Well, people would say you're religious. You and I are a lot like these group of people. The people in the world look at you and I, because we're in church on Sunday, as the most religious people in America 
And so it's true of us that sometimes the most religious people are the ones that trust God the least. Hold on, this is going to be a little bit rough. Literally, they're trying to trap Jesus. The NIV says they were trying to catch him in his words. I love the New Living Translation that says they were trying to trap him. And Jesus says later, why? Are you, verse 15, why are you guys trying to trap me? So we, we see real clearly, they're not coming to him with the right motives. So what are their motives? Well, Jesus sees right through it. He sees their hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Well, it's actually a really, really bad word. And it's interesting to me that when I talk about how the world looks at you and I and says, you're probably the most religious people, this is their favorite word for you and me. You're just a bunch of hypocrites. And I don't know if they're meaning to say all that that word means, but let me just show you. Here's what it means. To deceive through dishonesty. The word literally means two-faced. It it, it was referring to Greek actors who would put a mask up and then put another mask up, and so there were two-faced. You know, who's really there? And so you're not really sure who's behind the mask. And, And so when a person's being a hypocrite, they're deceiving by showing another face. They're trying to pretend to be someone they're not. Now, when we see that in a play on a stage, we understand they're play acting. We don't think of it in a moral kind of way. But when a person is living their life pretending to be someone they're not, pretending to be godly, pretending to be religious, pretending to trust God, but in reality, they're not really doing that. That's a deceptive person. And actually, the person we are receiving the most may be ourselves. This is the person who comes to God because, before I say the word dishonest, because God sees us. I mean, come on, really? I can fool you, you can fool me, but nobody can fool God. It's kind of a funny statement. They were trying to trap Jesus, trying to trick Jesus. Really? Clearly, they don't know who Jesus is yet. You can't trick Jesus. They couldn't and you can't. So if you're here this morning with the wrong motives, we can't see that, but God does. If you think just by going to church that you've impressed God, God doesn't look at your church attendance. What does God look at? Your heart. God doesn't look at me and my preaching and my role as a pastor. He looks at my heart. And what does God want from you and from me when we come to him? The exact opposite of this. He wants us just to come with honesty, authenticity. Come as you are. Come real. It really bugs me, and it should bug you, that when the world looks at us, they say we're a bunch of hypocrites. I'm afraid they might be true. They might be right too many times. But in the reality, I can't change how they think about me, but I can change how I come before God. At the end of the day, God is my judge, not the world. Whether they're right or wrong about me, God sees me. God sees you. 
So you can't trick God. You can't play psychologist with God. You, you can't do reverse psychology and try to trick God into getting something you want. No, no, no. So just come honestly. Come authentically. Be real with God because he already sees your heart. So if God wants me to come with honesty, what else would God want me to come with? Well, probably one of the clearest verses in the whole Bible is Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, which says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we need to come with faith because anyone who comes to him, there's our phrase, we're asking the question, how do we come to God? Anyone who comes to him must believe. So there we are, faith and belief. Basically, at the very basic, believe that he exists and he rewards those who diligently seek him. So what's the word for faith and belief? It's the word trust. How does God want us to come? With honesty, authenticity, and with trust. Anyone who comes to him must come with faith. And clearly, these people, these religious leaders are not coming with faith. They've come with another agenda, right? You, when we read it, you saw what their agenda was, right? It's, it starts in, in, in language. It starts in verse, 50, uh, verse 14 when he says, is it, they say, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Again, Jesus Caesar hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. So this is all about money, right? They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is God's. That last phrase helps us see what this passage is all about. A lot of people want to use this passage to talk about our relationship with the state, with the government, whether we should pay taxes or not. But you do see, don't you, that that's not the point of this passage. That's the smokescreen that they're coming with in order to trap Jesus. They're trying to, in, in case you don't get what this is about, you know, if they think they've got Jesus trapped on this horns of this dilemma. If Jesus says, oh yeah, you should pay your taxes, then all the people who hate Rome are like, oh, we, we, we really like this Jesus, but now he's a, he's a Roman sympathizer. We thought the Messiah, he clearly can't be the Messiah, because we thought the Messiah was going to be the one that would deliver us from Rome. Why would he have us pay taxes? And so the Pharisees go, if we can get him to pay, to say, yes, pay taxes, then the people will no longer follow him. But on the other hand, if he says, no, don't pay taxes to Rome. In other words, if he pleases the people and they're like, yeah, now Rome's upset and Rome might arrest him for being an insurrectionist because he's going against Rome real clearly. They go, we got him. Either the people are gonna hate him or Rome is gonna hate him. We got him nailed. But just like then, the point isn't taxes. They knew that. And when we open this text and exposit it and try to understand it, we must not get caught up in thinking, that's the point. What's the point? It's what Jesus says. He sees our hypocrisy. He says, this is just a, a trap question. Let me help you see what is the, the real crux of the matter. So this is what I've highlighted. Give back to Caesar. What is Caesar's? By the way, brilliant answer. Hello? I mean, you, sometimes you look at the things Jesus says and you're like, wow, that... That is a brilliant answer. But beyond Jesus's intelligence and his brilliance, let's 
let's unpack this phrase, basically the line, give to God what is God's. That's what we're going to talk about today, because not only does God want us to come to him, he wants us to give to him. And what does he want us to give to him? Well, he wants us to give to him what is his. And what is that? Well, let's go back into the text. Verse 16, Jesus, or verse 15, Jesus says, bring me a denarius, bring me a coin, bring me a dollar bill, or you know, bring me money. <laughs> Show me the money. <clears throat> and they brought the coin. And he asked them, whose image is this? And I've just highlighted that because not only was Jesus' answer brilliant, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Yeah, pay the taxes but give to God what is God's. Not only was his answer brilliant, this question, we've pointed out before that Jesus was the master at asking questions, penetrating questions, revealing questions. And this is an incredible question. Whose image is on the coin? <clears throat> they looked at the coin as if they needed to because they loved money, the, the Pharisees, the Bible says. And there is the, the image of Caesar. And whose inscription is on it? And there's the inscription stamped on this coin. Now, when Jesus says, whose image is this? And says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give this coin because this coin has the image of Caesar. Give it back to Caesar. But give to God what is God's. Where is God's image stamped? Some of you know. I love to quote this verse, Genesis 127. Those of you who follow my preaching, you're like, Jim, you're always talking about Genesis 127. I know. I love the verse. So God created man in his own image. Let's repeat it. In the image of God, he created male and female. I've used this verse for many things because it's such a foundational verse. Let me use it today because I believe that Jesus is is implying a reference here when he talks about the image being stamped on the coin and then says, not only do you need to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. There's a clear implication. Wherever God's image is stamped, that belongs to God. Give that to God. So here is the incredible truth on every human heart, soul, that place that no doctor can see, no microscope can see, on the deepest part of every human being, God has, you might say, stamped his image. We are, we were created in the image of God. Every human being, not just religious people, not even spiritual people, you know, you could be spiritual about all kinds of things. Everybody, every human being is made in the image of God. So when we ask the question, what does God want us to give to him? That which belongs to him. And who's that? You and me, our very lives. Why? Because we're made in his image. Therefore, we belong to him. It's, it's, it's that we are his. Now, some of you know that throughout the Bible, there's this phrase that shows up in one of my favorite places in Psalm 24, where it talks about the earth is the Lord's. It's like the earth belongs to the Lord. 
and everything in the earth. You know, for, the, for those people in those days, that was, that was the cosmos. And that was everything, you know. That, so it all belongs to the Lord, everything in it and all who live in it. So I give my life because I'm one of the who who lives in this earth and I belong to the Lord because I've been made in his image. But not only is it everything about who I am, but everything else in the world, literally, everything belongs to God. God owns it all. This is such a foundational truth that so many of us forget. So what is it that God wants us to give to him? Our lives. Secondly, everything we have. Um, <laughs> one of the the, the little exercises that we're going to give you to do in the excursion guide, and there's one of these for every, every adult, is um, there's a little exercise very early in the, in, the, in the book, in the excursion guide, to, <clears throat> to make a list of all that you have. And um, <clears throat> there's not enough room in the excursion guide for you to write it all down. And I wonder how many of you will... Uh, take this seriously. It's a kind of a fun little activity. <clears throat> Excuse me. I did this years ago. I wrote about it actually in my book about I made a list of all these things that I had that I felt like I owned. And, and at the time I felt like, well, I don't really own that much. My neighbors, now my neighbors own a lot, I thought, but you know, I really don't have that much. And then I just started writing it down <laughs> and writing it down and, you know, and on the more pages. And no matter how much you have, You'll be stunned, and I hope that you might be able to come to the recognition that you've got a lot, actually, actually, because you are listening to my voice and are probably in America. I mean, you actually may be in a different country because some people do, but most people who hear the sermons here are from this country. If you live in America, you are, the one, you are a group, a part of the richest people in the world. I mean, not, not even close. The poorest American is so much more richer than the average person in the world. Just being in this country makes you one of the richest people in the world. I know you're like, no, I'm not. It's all who you compare yourself to. But the value of making a list, I dare you. I dare you. See how many things you can write down that you own. And then say, quote Psalm 24, 1, the earth belongs to the Lord and everything in it. The next part of the exercise is to say to God, actually, this all belongs to you. God owns it all. Say that with me out loud. God owns it all. Say it one more time. God owns it all including, Haggai says, money. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. So God wants us to give to him our money. Oh, I knew it, you know, preachers always want to talk about money. Actually, I do want to talk about money today because as I'm going to explain, it's something that God gives to us to teach us how to trust him. The answer to the question as to why God wants us to give to him our money is not, look at the screen here, because everything belongs to him. The reason why God wants us to give him our money is because money 
always, <laughs> without exception. That's what always means. Always involves trust. Remember how we said at the beginning of the sermon that God is arranging our lives. He's arranging the circumstances in our lives. He's arranging this, the, the relationships. He's giving us gifts, money, talent, intelligence, breath, children, talents, abilities. God's giving, 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 giving. When in reality, actually, that giving is entrusting because God is trying to teach us how to trust. God knows when it comes to money, that's the thing that I'm inclined to trust. So God, who is brilliant again, knows if I want to get at the heart and soul, for where your treasure is, there is your heart also, Matthew 6, 21. If I want to get at the heart of what trust is all about in every human being, I need to go for their money. Because God needs their money? No, we already saw he owns it all. God gives you money. God asks you to give money back to him because it's his favorite and it's the most effective way for God to teach us how to trust. Now, you're free to argue with that. But that's not a law, what I just said. But I, I, I invite you to, if you want to argue, to think about that deeply uh, and see if you can figure out what is a deeper thing than money that we trust. <laughs> um, um, do you know when we began to stamp on our money in the United States of America, the phrase, in God we trust? I thought for the longest time it was, you know, in the, the early days of our country, 1700, 1776, probably 1777, maybe, you know. It wasn't until Abraham Lincoln, his administration, 1860s, that a preacher in Pennsylvania uh, wrote a letter to the Department of Treasury and recommended that we put some language on our coinage. At that point, we didn't have dollar bills. Our coinage that reminds us that our trust is in God and not in money. And they actually read the letter. <clears throat> that went to the Department of the, the Secretary of Treasury, Salmon, Salmon, or maybe it was Salmon. If it's a fish, it's Salmon. If it's a name, it's Salmon. I don't know. Salmon Chase, the, uh, Treasurer, um, the uh, Secretary of Treasury. And then it had to go to Congress. So it was an act of Congress <laughs> to get in God we trust on our money. And then President Abraham Lincoln signed it into law. Like eight, you know, actually it was the last congressional bill that he signed into law before he was assassinated. The last one was a bill that instructed us to mint on our coins. And then within a couple years, we started to print bills, $1 bills, $5 bills, $10 bills. And here it is, a $100 bill, a 20, a 50. And it all has in God we trust. Because those wise people knew that our tendency is to trust money. And, and why is that? Don't, don't get offended here. Why is it? Because money is trustworthy to a point. Come on, you can say, you're afraid to say yes. I agree. You know, when, when, see, we, every time you handle money, whether it's physical or electronic, digitally or analog, 
you're involved in a trust transaction. When you give somebody a $20 bill to pay for a gallon of milk, it feels that way now, doesn't it? It's like everything's just going up. When you give money, you're you're trusting that they're going to, excuse me, give you change back the right change, you're trusting that that's going to pay for that item that you want. When you give money to the bank, you're trusting that they're going to put it in your account and not somebody else's. When you do something digitally, you know, on Venmo or PayPal, you're trusting the system, Apple or somebody to, to put that money where, it, you know, you're trusting all the time. Every time you handle money, again, physically or electronically, you're involved in a trust transaction. And most of the time, getting less and less true these days. Most of the time, what you pay for, you get back. You know, when you put your money there, you get back what you pay for. So money is inclined to teach us to trust it. If I want food, I need money. Money will help me buy food. But money won't buy you love, if you're with me there on it. You know, there's things you can buy with money because money is trustworthy to a point. And so because it is, we are inclined to put all of our trust in money. God knows that. It was true when people bartered and had coins that were rough, and it's true for dollar bills, and it's true for electronic exchanges. We tend to put our trust in money. So God says, if the most important thing in your life is for you to learn to trust, then I'm gonna go to teach you how to trust by entrusting you with money and I invite you, ask you, even command you, return. I always like to use the word, we return our tithes to God because it all belongs to him. I don't take an offering. I don't give an offering. I return the money back to God. It's just a small thing, but it reminds me it all belongs to God. And it's a good question to ask ourselves, who or, or what do we trust? Ask yourself that. I'll give you 10 seconds to just think about it. Who or what do you trust? See, God wants us to trust in him. And every time, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, that we trust someone, every trust relationship we're through in, our spouse, our bank, our job, our boss, God, every relationship, because every relationship is a relationship of trust. Some relationships are hardly any trust. Some relationships are high trust, but you can't have a relationship without trust. So in this trust relationship between the God who owns everything and us, how does this relationship of trust work? Well, we'll give God kind of a title and we'll give ourselves a What's God's? The God's part of the relationship, as we see from Psalm 24, one, is that God owns everything. He's the trust, because this is a relationship of trust. He's the trustworthy owner. What does that make us? It makes us the trustworthy stewards. This is the ideal relationship. Not untrustworthy stewards, but trustworthy. God's not an untrustworthy owner. Look up here. God is not an untrustworthy owner. He's trustworthy. Are we trustworthy stewards? <laughs> you see, this whole adventure of trust is the process of becoming 
trustworthy stewards. I, I referred to my book earlier. I, I told a story in, in my book about um, when I was younger, I, I didn't realize it, but my dad was teaching me about stewardship. He, uh, he, he uh, loaned, he didn't really say he loaned it to me. He didn't say he gave it to me. He just made available a, a Ford Pinto, <laughs> this will take some of you back, for uh, me and my brother to drive and my sister to drive when we were in high school. And uh, my sister had, had left home, and my younger brother was too young to drive. So for a couple of years, it was my car. But it wasn't my car. It was my dad and my mom's car. But I treated it as if it was my car. I'm going to give you an illustration of an untrustworthy steward. My dad owned the car. I was supposed to be a steward of the car. My dad was a trustworthy owner, but I was not a trustworthy steward. And I didn't realize until I was writing my book, and I actually say this in the book, it's not until I wrote these words, typed them, that I realized how horrible of a steward I was all those years ago. What do I mean? I mean, I raced people in that car. I jumped railroad tracks and got, tried to get as much air as I could in that car, trashed the car. I ran from the cops in that car. I partied in that car. I did some things I can't even talk about in that car. I, um, I, I, I chased people in that car. I mean, I mean, I completely abused that car. That's where I learned how to do power slides. Give it all you got, hit the pull, the emergency brake, and the car just slides. I, I perfected power slides in that red Pinto. And I mean, I OD'd. And I overdosed in that car. I mean, there's, that car had a lot of memories. And then I took my little brother who wasn't able to drive yet, and I taught him how to drive in that car before he should have been able to. And he wrecked the car, uh, or at least, yeah, he wrecked it, but it was still drivable. And he and I tried to deceive my dad into fixing the, the, the wheel well that was cracked. And, and, and I didn't even think about all this. It didn't even occur to me how, what a bad steward I was until years, decades later, I'm writing my book about being a trustworthy steward. And I'm, I'm listing all the things I did in, that, in my dad's car. And it just hit me. Dude, you were a terrible steward a manager of what your father entrusted to you. And so I've been learning. <laughs> I don't have a good track record from my high school years of being a good steward, but over the years, I've gotten a little bit better. So if you were thinking about letting me borrow your car, I'm good now. I'm, I, I won't jump railroad tracks with it, I promise. But watch this. See, learning to be a trustworthy steward is part of learning to be more like Jesus. What, what, what? Remember the, our Christ acronym, how we talk about, this is, this is our description by studying the New Testament. These things describe Jesus. And so as we see, Jesus was connected to God through the word and prayer. Okay, then if I'm gonna be like Christ, I need to live connected to God. Jesus had a heart of worship, so I need to have a heart of worship. Jesus related with other-centered love. You see it throughout the Bible, so I need to. He intentionally evangelized people, so I need to. He was a spirit-led servant. Wait a minute. Jesus was a trustworthy. Some of you have skipped right over that. You're like, yeah, hey, whatever. It's the T of Christ. Are you just trying to, what do you mean Jesus was a trustworthy steward? I'll explain to that in just a couple of seconds when I wrap this thing up. But if this is what it means to be like Christ, we draw this right from the scriptures, then the process of becoming like Christ, what is what we call discipleship, learning to be a trustworthy steward is a part of what it becomes to be more like Christ. That means stewardship 
is actually a discipleship issue as we learn to be good stewards, trustworthy stewards of all that God has entrusted to us, we hopefully learn to become better and better stewards. This phrase, God entrusts us in order to teach us to trust. God entrusts us with children, with intelligence, with gifts, with abilities with the very breath we breathe, with the money we have, with the resources that he owns but has given to us. Listen to this. He entrusts it in order to teach us to trust. Now, remember, I said I would explain how Jesus was a trustworthy steward. The book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus was faithful. That's the word trustworthy. He was faithful to the one that should be capitalized. Who's this? The Father. To the one who appointed. What's he talking about? He's talking about how in heaven, God the Father sent. Jesus says, I've been sent by the Father. God the Father sent Jesus to planet Earth. We sang, for God so loved the world that he gave his Son. He entrusted his son. He entrusted his son with what? Several things. God the Father entrusted Jesus. Go show them what I'm really like. I'm entrusting you, Jesus, to give them an accurate depiction because their understanding of me is all messed up. Jesus, will you be faithful to my appointment? I'm trusting you to give an accurate understanding of who I am. Secondly, I'm entrusting you to love them. I'm entrusting you to model for them what a human life is supposed to be. I'm entrusting you and you're going to be tempted and you're going to get distracted. And being a human is going to cause you to be hurt and sad and grieve and and all these things are going to happen. But I'm entrusting you with me, who I am, my mission. I want you to go to that planet and I want you to represent me well. And Jesus, at the end of your life, I want you to die on the cross. Can I trust you, Jesus? to live your whole life undistracted to the mission I'm giving you? Can I trust you to be faithful to this 30-year mission culminated by you willingly laying down your life? Jesus, can I trust you? Rhetorical question. Jesus, I'm in. Do you see how the Father entrusted Jesus to come to this earth and to display the nature of God? to show us the love of God, to love us and to show us how to love one another and then to die on the cross for our sins. And was Jesus a trustworthy? This is your chance to shout back. Was Jesus a trustworthy steward of all that God gave him? I need a better yes than that. Was Jesus a trustworthy steward of all that God gave him? Amen. And that's why we say his Record, his trustworthy record is one we want to pursue because that's part of what it means to be like Christ. And so we read later in Hebrews, let us come right into the presence of God. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. With sincere hearts, fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's own blood to make us clean. This adventure of trust that I'm inviting you into 
that I'm calling you to. This question that we heard in the video, will you trust me, finds its genesis in Jesus Christ, the trustworthy steward, being a trustworthy steward of all that God entrusted to him, him laying down his life for you. So that if you ever find yourself asking, can I trust Jesus? Remember the cross. Come on. If you ever find yourself asking, can I trust God? Remember the cross. Amen? God is the trustworthy owner. Jesus models what it means to be a trustworthy steward. And he invites us into this adventure of trust. And Jesus says, follow me. <laughs> trust like me. Follow me. I've already, I'm the pioneer. I'm the trailblazer. I've, I've lived a trustworthy life. I've been a trustworthy steward. Follow me. Learn from me. Become more like me. And the more we get to know him, actually, actually, the easier it will be to trust him. I didn't say the more religious you are. I said the more we get to know him, the easier we'll find it is to trust him because he has never, not once, been untrustworthy. You can, and I want to say, should, Trust this God. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, this adventure that we're getting ready to go on, I'm so excited about it. Lead us. Take us on this adventure with you. We'll follow you anywhere. <laughs> Many of us have already said that. We're going to sing that. But, Lord, today we, we're getting more clear about that. We're going to follow you on this adventure of trust. We're going to keep reminding ourselves, you are the trustworthy one. And the Holy Spirit, would you, I ask now, at the beginning of this, this adventure, this excursion, would you fill us and enable us to trust you in every way? For we pray this prayer in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.